السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونشكره ونستعينه ونستغفره ونستهديه ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ولا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أرسله بالحق بشيرا ونذيرا بين يدي الساعة من يتع الله ورسوله فقد رشد ومن يعصيهما فقد غوى حتى يفيء إلى أمر الله وإنه لا يضر إلا نفسه ولن يضر الله شيئا وقال الله عز من قائل أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد completed the tafsir of Surah Al-Falaq and before that we completed the tafsir of Surah Al-Nas. Today, inshallah, we will be going through the tafsir of the 112th Surah of the Qur'an, Surah Al-Ikhlas. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قل هو الله أحد الله الصمد لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكن له كفوا أحد This is the 112th surah of the Quran It's known by various names The most famous name actually mentioned in a number of hadith is surah قل هو الله أحد It's also known as surah al-ikhlas as well as Surah Al-Tawheed and Surah Al-Asas. And then there are many other names, but these are the more, most famous names. Surah Qul Allahu Ahad is very obvious in that the Prophet merely used the beginning words of the Surah to give it its name. And this is actually the name mentioned in many hadith. So Surah Qul Allahu Ahad. It's also famously known as Surah Al-Ikhlas. And the meaning of Ikhlas is, in this context at least, is to make sincere and exclusive. For instance, in the verse of the Qur'an, Allah says, مُخْلِسِينَ لَهُ Making religion sincere and exclusive for Allah. All the words that are related to the roots well, here, ikhlas means, we don't have time to go into it, but ikhlas here means to make sincere and exclusive. It's also known as Surah Al-Tawheed for the simple reason that Tawheed meaning the unity and oneness of Allah and monotheism. So, since the whole surah speaks only about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his unique nature, and especially his oneness. This is why it's also known as Surah Al-Tawheed. Another fourth name used for this surah, 
is Suratul Asas. It's not as well known as the first three, but it's also another name, meaning the foundation. Suratul Asas meaning the foundation. And the understanding behind that name is that the Surah, this is the very foundation of Tawheed, of religion, and in fact of the Holy Qur'an. So here we have it, Surah Qul Allahu Ahad, Surah Al-Ikhlas, Surah Al-Tawheed. It's the 112th Surah of the Qur'an. It's one of the most famous Surahs of the Qur'an, one of the, most, one of the shortest Surahs of the Qur'an. And it's also one of those Surahs which the Prophet ﷺ used to recite frequently and encourage the believers to recite as frequently as possible by itself. Uh, and also in conjunction with Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. You may recall two months ago, as well as last month, when discussing Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas, I mentioned many hadith about the virtues of Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas, as well as the usage of these two final surahs as a means of protection prescribed by the Prophet ﷺ for the believers and practiced by himself. And in all of those hadith, there were a large number of hadith which also included Surah Qul Allahu Ahad as the third surah to be recited in conjunction with Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. So I refer you to all of those hadith, uh, as well as uh, a number of hadith of virtues for Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas, which also included Surah Al-Ikhlas. So both in terms of their virtue, as well as in terms of their prescribed reading for protection and for salvation, uh, the Prophet ﷺ has joined these three final surahs of the Qur'an. So I refer you to all of those hadith about both the virtues as well as the prescribed reading for protection as I discussed in the tafsir of Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. Here, exclusively about Surah Al-Ikhlas, Surah Al-Tawheed or Surah Qulhu Allahu Ahad, there are a number of ahadith which speak only about this surah. Most famously, the, this surah is known as being one-third of the Qur'an. And that's quite commonly known and believed. And in fact, it has uh, a very authentic foundation because the Prophet ﷺ himself, in more than one hadith, has mentioned the surah of Allahu Ahad being equivalent to one-third of the Qur'an. For instance, Imam Bukhari relates a hadith from Sayyidina Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, عنه, who says that, one day a man heard another person reciting Surah Qulhu Allahu Ahad repeatedly at night. He just kept on repeating the same Surah over and over again. The listener found this to be somewhat strange. And also the words of the Haditha, كَأَنَّهُ يَتَقَالُّهَا which, which mean that he not only found this repetition of Surah Qulhu Allah had strange, but he was also, it seemed as though he considered it to be little, i.e., why was this person 
constantly repeating a short surah of the Qur'an. Doesn't he know anything else? Or why doesn't he recite another portion of the Qur'an? Why suffice with only Allahu ahad and repeat it? So this listener came to the Prophet ﷺ the next morning and said to the Prophet ﷺ, Messenger of Allah, I heard this person repeatedly recite over and over again without reciting anything else. And when Abu Sa'id al-Khudri says in the hadith, it seemed as though he considered this uh, recitation of meager. The Prophet said to him, By that Allah in whose hands rests my soul, it, meaning قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ is equivalent to one-third of the Qur'an. And in another hadith, again related by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih, from the same companion, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, radiyallahu he says, the Prophet wasallam said to the companions, can't one of you recite... the can't one of you recite one-third of the Qur'an in one night? So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, some of them replied by saying, O Messenger of Allah, how many of us can actually do this? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Verily, قُلْ ahad is equivalent to one-third of the Qur'an. So both of these hadith related by the same companion, coincidentally, speak about the Qur'an being one-third, sorry, Surah Qul Ahad being one-third of the Qur'an. And here the question is, what makes Qul Allahu Ahad equivalent to one-third of the Qur'an? First of all, Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam know best in terms of virtue, because He has related to us that the surah is equivalent to one-third of the Qur'an. That's in terms of virtue uh, and barakah, etc. But as far as meaning is concerned, in fact, it's very straightforward. If we consider a summary of the entire Qur'an, we will realize that ultimately the Qur'an speaks of three things. Whether it's the stories of the past, whether it's laws, whether it's parables and similitudes, whether it's the accounts of the people, peoples and the prophets of the past, whether it's an account of the future, a prophecy, whether it's an account of the day of reckoning or Jannah and Jahannam. Ultimately, the Qur'an's core content will be related to one of three things. The Qur'an either speaks about the Creator or the relationship between the Creator and the creation. Two. Or three, the relationship between the creation and the creation. Ultimately, that's what it's about. Either the Creator himself, Allah speaks about himself, or Allah speaks about his relationship with his creation. 
And that includes all the laws. Worship, laws, halal, haram. The accounts of the past, the accounts of the future. Or, Allah speaks, the Quran speaks about the relationship between some of the creation with others. And here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about himself. The core contents of the Qur'an can be divided into these three. The creator, the creator's relationship with the creation, and the creation's relationship with each other. And in this surah, Allah speaks about the first, himself. This is why the, this surah can be regarded as being one-third of the Qur'an in its meaning and message. Because ultimately... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout the Qur'an emphasizes his oneness, his tawheed. Countless parables, similitudes, examples after example. The warnings of the previous messengers. The laws of worship, of halal and haram, ultimately point to making religion exclusive and one for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. His monotheism. His unity, his oneness, worshipping him and him alone. Right at the beginning of the Holy Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of the same. I always in the past three well, in the previous two surahs, I alluded to the to this also. That if you look at the beginning of the Quran, Surah Al Fatiha, what does Allah say? Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, Ar Rahman Ar Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin. All praise belongs to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. The most gracious, the merciful. Sovereign of the day of judgment. Here Allah speaks about himself. His names, his qualities and his attributes. And then Allah speaks about his relationship with his creation. Allah teaches us that we should be saying... It is only you that we worship, and it is only you from whom we seek aid and help. That's our relationship with Allah. That worship should be one of tawheed, exclusive for Allah. Seeking refuge, seeking aid and assistance should only be from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what this whole surah is about. Till the end. Apart from those two hadith which I mentioned in the beginning from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu other virtues are also mentioned. For instance, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi again relates a hadith from Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam dispatched a military expedition and the companion that he appointed as a leader of that expedition, he would lead them in prayer. And his group experienced something which they hadn't before, which is that this companion that had been appointed over them, who led them in prayer throughout this journey, till their return, whenever he would lead them in salah, in prayer, he would recite one surah, but after having completed that surah in the rak'ah, he would end it with a recitation of Qulhu Allahu Ahad. 
And then in the second rak'ah, he would do the same. He'd recite another surah. And then at the end, having completed that one surah, he'd add another surah, which is, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ So the companions hadn't experienced this before. So when they returned, some of them mentioned this to the Prophet ﷺ, that this companion, who was our amir and leader, whenever he would lead us in prayer, this is what he would do. He would always read another portion of the Qur'an, but at the end, he would complete the rak'ah with a spe- special recitation of Qul Huwallahu Ahad. So he would always read two surahs in every rak'ah. The second and the last one would always be Qul Huwallahu Ahad. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, why don't you approach him and ask him, why did he, used to do, why did he do this? So they did. So... His reply was that Qul Allahu Ahad contains the attributes of the most gracious, Rahman. And I love reciting this surah. So when they came back and relayed this answer to the Prophet ﷺ, he said to them, go and inform him that Allah loves him also. Sayyidina Anas relates a hadith, very similar, but again recorded by Imam Bukhari in his sahih. That Masjid Quba in Al Madinatul Munawwara, one of the Ansar companions was appointed to lead them in prayer as the Imam in Masjid Quba. And he, he had a habit. He would begin every rak'ah with a recitation of Qulhu Allahu Ahad. And then he would add another surah. So it's similar to what Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha related from, uh, about that companion on the journey. He would read another surah and then end with Qulhu Allahu Ahad. Sayyidina Anas radiallahu anhu relates that this imam of Masjid Quba in Medina, he would recite Qulhu Allahu Ahad at the beginning and then add another surah. So... The companions, because this was a very large congregation, they weren't on a journey, but this was a large congregation, they actually approached the imam and said to him that, why do you do this? You always begin the rak'ah with, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ And then you add another surah. Either you suffice with this, with قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ And having read it, you then go into ruku' and end the rak'ah. Or, if you feel, and these are the words of the hadith, that if you feel that Qul Allahu Ahad isn't sufficient for you in the rak'ah, then read something else. But he persisted. So, they approached the prophets, they actually approached him, and he, when their remonstrations became quite excessive, he actually told them quite bluntly that, look, this is how I will continue to read. I will always read Qul Allahu Ahad and another surah in every rak'ah. Now either you be content with that, or if you aren't happy with that, remove me and have someone else lead you in prayer. But at the same time, Sayyidina Anas radiallahu anhu says that the companions regarded him as being the most learned and virtuous amongst them. So they did not want to remove him as the imam. So they approached the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam questioned him that why do you do why why don't you 
do what your companions are suggesting, which is, you suffice with the surah in the rak'ah, or you read another one, instead of combining this always with another surah. So he said to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, I love this surah. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Your love for this surah has granted you entry into Jannah. There are other hadith as well, and coincidentally, all four of these hadith which I've related about the virtues of Surah Quluhu Allahu Ahad are all from Sahih al-Bukhari. Finally, Sayyidina Anas radiyallahu an, not the same Anas radiyallahu an, another Anas, Anas al-Juhani radiyallahu an, he relates in a hadith recorded by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and others, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, whoever recites, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ ten times, بَنَ اللَّهُ لَهُ قَصْرًا فِي الْجَنَّةِ Allah will build a palace for him in Jannah. So, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an, when he heard this, he said, Ya Rasulullah, in that case, we will recite it excessively. If for every ten complete recitations of قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ Allah will grant us a palace in Jannah, then we will recite it excessively. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Allahu akthar wa atyab, Allah is more and purer than that. Meaning, as much as you will recite, Allah will reward you accordingly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's treasures are unlimited. And finally, one uh, hadith, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says that when, again, this hadith related by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih, that when the Prophet ﷺ would retire at night, he would raise his hands and blow into them, reciting, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحْرِدُ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقُ قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ And then he would wipe himself, blow into his palms, and then wipe himself all over his body, beginning with his head, and the front part of his body, and then the rear. So, again, this is something I mentioned in the previous hadith, this was a noble practice of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, moving on to the actual uh, tafsir of Qul Allahu Ahad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Qul Allahu Ahad, say, He is Allah, the only one, a samad, the independent, Allah, the independent, Allah, samad, lam yalid wa lam yulid. He did not give birth, nor was he born. And there is no one comparable to him. Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi relates a hadith in his sunan and so do others from Sayyidina Ubayy ibn Ka'b one of the most famous reciters of the Qur'an that the pagans approached the Prophet sallallahu and said to him O Muhammad, describe the lineage and the origin of Allah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this surah. And from other narrations we learn also that more than one person approached the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa or shall we say, more than one group of people approached him and questioned him, both in Mecca and Medina, although the verse was revealed, the surah was revealed in Mecca, uh, this was a question that was repeated by various people uh, to the Messenger that tell us of the origin 
of Allah and tell us of his lineage. That question may sound very bizarre to us. The lineage of Allah. His origin. His genealogy. His parenthood. His parentage. His trace. But that question in itself reveals the mentality of people at the time of the coming of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he also makes clear to us the various concepts of God that existed at that time, which the Prophet came to abolish and to replace with this monotheistic belief of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not just a question of making one's worship exclusive for Allah. It's also a question of conceiving and perceiving of God in the correct manner. How would people during the time of the Prophet ﷺ view Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? This is speaking about the state of the world at the time of the coming of the Messenger ﷺ. In various parts of the world, not just restricted to Arabia, but in various parts of the world, there was polytheism. And the worship of many gods. But it wasn't simply a case of there were many different gods and people worshipped them. If we study the perception of these gods, various cultures believed in gods being very similar to human beings. Gods of love, gods of jealousy, gods of war, gods who would battle with each other, gods who lived as families and as tribes and as clans. In fact, if you look into Greek mythology, Roman mythology, various mythologies of Europe, as well as the Far East, this is a very clear concept of God. There is no single concept of one God, but of many gods. And these gods are almost human, full of passion, rage, jealousy, anger, battling and warring amongst themselves, each with his own, each with his or her own group or clan, own little band. That was one view of God. There was also a belief that there is one God of evil and one God of good, Allah being the God of good, and so on. And when it came to the worship of many different gods and idols, there were some chief idols in Arabia and its surroundings. And Allah mentions some of them in the Qur'an. These are the most famous ones. Well, these are the ones that Allah has mentioned. The most famous ones are Allah mentions in Surah Al-Najm that what? Do you see Laat, Uzza and the third Manat? Laat, Uzza and Manat were three famous goddesses. They weren't just gods, but goddesses of Arabia. And these were considered some of the greatest goddesses and idols. Whole tribes were devoted to these goddesses. And they were female goddesses. And quite blasphemously, they were 
attributed to Allah as being Allah's daughters. So, Lat, Uzza, and Manat were described as being the daughters of Allah. There were other gods as well, many throughout Arabia, though not mentioned in the Quran. There were some gods from the time of, there was another one from the time of Arabia, uh, from the time of Rasulullah and from before, which is mentioned, Ba'al. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, What do you call out to Ba'al? And you abandon or you leave aside the best of all creators, the best of creators, Allah. So these are four that are mentioned, and there are five other gods or shall we say idols mentioned from the time of Sayyidina Nuh alayhi salatu wasalam, mentioned in Surah Nuh, where Allah says, And they said, Do not abandon your gods, and do not abandon. Wad, and Suwa' and Yaghuth, and Ya'uq, and Nasr. So these are nine idols mentioned in the Qur'an. Laat, Uzza, Manat, Ba'al, Wad, Suwa' Ya'uth, Ya'uq, and Nasr. Apart from these ones actually identified in the Qur'an, there were countless others, other gods and idols. The most famous one in the Kaaba was Hubal. And this was a god referred to by Abu Sufyan after the Battle of Uhud, where he said, U'lu Hubal. And many of them would call out to Hubal. So Hubal was one famous god. But it wasn't just a question of nine or ten. Arabia, as well as other parts of the world, were filled with many gods and idols and goddesses. And things had become so bleak and so ridiculous, even amongst the Arabs, that... Every tribe had a god, a super goddess or a super god, and then every clan had a god. Sometimes a family would have, it, would have its own unique specific idol. And this is actually documented that when the Arabs would travel, they used to, when, when they would break off their journey and dismount, and prepare to retire for the night or for a short while, the Arabs would gather four stones. Three would be used as the base or the foundation for their cauldron and their pot. And the fourth would become their temporary idol. So three stones for cooking and one stone for worshipping. And they would actually worship that stone. And when they would rise to resume their journey, they would abandon their cooking stones and they'd abandon their uh, temporary god and stone. In fact, again, it's documented that they would actually... There was one god that was made out of flour. So again, it was temporary. They would just simply knead dough, carve or form an idol from the dough, worship it, and then... When, they, when it had expired its need and usefulness, they would actually cook it. And then they would worship sweetmeats. Now, these may all sound quite humorous and far-fetched, but this is actually documented in Arabian literature. So, this is how bleak and ridiculous the situation had become when it came to worshipping gods, goddesses, stones and idols. Apart from, now some, some may scoff at such worship, 
But, over time, others have themselves, whilst claiming to be monotheistic, whilst claiming to make religion and worship exclusive for Allah, they have, apparently on a lesser scale, but with equal gravity as far as the Qur'an is concerned, they have also been guilty of polytheism. So the worshipping or the excessive veneration of icons, all ascribing partners to Allah or children to Allah, male or female, and worshipping them. In the view of the Qur'an, all of these forms of worship, besides the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, are equally condemned in the Qur'an. And this is what we see in the surah. It only contains four verses. Yet, every one of these verses excludes and precludes the possibility of any other type or form of deity besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one, the alone, and the unique. Let's go through the uh, verses of the Quran, the verses of the surah. Allah Azza wa Jal says, Qul say, Allahu ahad, He is Allah, the only one. Allah doesn't say al-wahid, the one. Ahad is a very unique word. Wahid and ahad apparently, not only do they share the same root, they are related, but they apparently mean the same thing. Wahid, one in Arabic, ahad, apparently just the one in Arabic. But in reality, they are two distinct words, although they share the same root. Wahid means one, but with wahid, wahid is part of a series of numbers. So with wahid follows two, three, with one there follows a two and a three. But ahad, although it means one, it actually means the only one. There is no second to ahad. It's exclusive. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't just say, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ الْوَاحِدُ Say he is Allah, the one. Say he is Allah, Ahad, the only one. There is no second God. There's no second God of evil. There are no other gods. There are no other deities. Say he is Allah, the only one. And other verses, there are, in fact, as I said earlier, most of the Quran is devoted to the tawheed and the exclusive worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But there are some verses which are very telling about the oneness of Allah. I mentioned earlier that in various mythologies, there is a belief that gods would battle with each other. And that there is a war of gods. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually refers to that in the Qur'an. In Surah Al-Anbiya, Allah azza wa jal says, لَوْ كَانَ فِيهِمَا آلِهَةٌ إِلَّا اللَّهُ لَفَسَدَتَهُ فَسُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَرْشِ عَمَّا يَصِفُونَ If there were other gods besides Allah in the heavens and the earth, they would both perish. The heavens and the earth would perish. Glorified and purified and sanctified be Allah of what they describe about him. 
And then in another verse in Surah Al-Isra, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ لَوْ كَانَ مَعَهُ آلِهَةٌ كَمَا يَقُولُونَ إِذَا لَبْتَغَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِي الْعَرْشِ السَّبِيلَ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَىٰ عَمَّا يَقُولُونَ عُلُوبًا كَبِيرًا Say, if there were other gods with Allah as they say, then they would surely find a path to the Lord of the throne. Sanctified be he, and exalted be he, of those things that they associate with him. What does that verse speak of? In both of these verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says exactly the same. That if there were other gods, then there would be this constant battle. There would be a war, a raging war. And in that verse, they would, These other gods would find a path to the Lord of the throne. But there are no other gods. And in another verse of Surah Al-Mu'minun, Allah subhanahu Subhanallah Amma Yasifun. Allah says, Allah has not taken a son. And there and there is no other God with Allah. If that was the case, then each God would withdraw with his own creation. And then they would assault each other. Sanctified be Allah of what they describe about him. So, indeed, this, these ideas and these concepts of God from various mythologies are actually referred to in the Qur'an. They believed in a cosmos which was at war. They believed in a heaven full of various gods and goddesses that were waging war against each other. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if that was the case, the heavens and the earth would perish. But the heavens and the earth exist in a fine balance. And they are upheld by Allah, the creator, the sustainer, the originator, the one and only, the unique. So, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ Say, He is Allah, the only one. Allahu samad Allah the Samad. Samad is a very unique word. To simplify it, it means the ultimate refuge. Everything and everyone is dependent on something. This verse actually addresses various concepts of gods uh, of God which say that God has a symbiotic relationship with his creation or with creation. Creation depends on God and God depends on the creation. Creation depends on the creator and creator, the creator depends on the creation. And there have been various uh, cultures and religions of the past which actually had this belief that God is necessary because there has to be a God for the universe and there has to be a universe for God. And that there is a symbiotic relationship between the creation and the creator. Both need each other. Asamad, the word, addresses that. Asamad means, in the, in the words of Abdullah ibn Abbas, عنhuma, he says, Asamad is he on whom everyone and everything depends, but he depends on no one or anything. 
As-Samad is he. These are the words of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhumah. As-Samad is he who is absolute and perfect in his nobility, absolute and perfect in his mastery, absolute and perfect in his knowledge, absolute and perfect in his wisdom. That's the meaning of As-Samad. It means many different things. The one who is totally independent whilst everything and everyone is dependent on him. He is the ultimate refuge. The eternal, the perfect, the absolute. But a single translation of a samad would be independent. Allah samad, Allah the independent. Lam yalid wa lam yulid. He did not beget, nor was he begotten. He did not give birth, nor was he born. This verse addresses the origin of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The question posed by a number of people to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in both Mecca and Medina at various stages of his prophethood and his message was that, O Muhammad, describe to us the lineage of your Lord. Tell us about the origin of Allah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah's origin he was never born. Allah has always existed. Allah will always exist. Allah is eternal. For him there was no beginning and there is no end. And a verse of the Quran in Surah Al-Hadid describes this beautifully. Allah says, He is the first and He is the last. He is the outward, and he is the inward, and he is the one who is all knowledgeable and all knowing of all things. We may not understand that. The eternal nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that he has always existed and will always exist. Quite simply, our minds do not have the capacity, they don't have the ability to fathom, to comprehend, to even to dwell and to reflect on this reality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As human beings, we are frail. Our bodies are frail, our hearts are frail, our minds are frail. And there is only so much that we can actually do. A flea is more capable than a human being in some aspects. A flea can leap 40 times its body length. A human being can barely manage twice its body length. Throughout Allah's creation of animals, birds and beasts, we will see that animals and even humble insects surpass us and supersede us in various aspects. In hearing, in sight, even in intelligence. They, there was a, you can search for it and watch the uh, clips, video clips of it. They did an experiment with numbers and monkeys. And the monkeys' response to numbers flashing up on the screen. And they were amazed. They tested with a few different monkeys. Every single monkey proved to be faster than a human being in its recognition and its response to flashing numbers. And its memory of those numbers. So, even in intelligence... Take any one of our senses, whether it's smell, whether it's sight, whether it's hearing, whether it's touch. 
whether it's memory, whether it's physical ability of the limbs, of the legs, of the hands, of the arms, of physical strength, or ultimately even of human intelligence, we will notice that individually, of course, Allah has honored us overall, so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala overall has made human beings the best and the great, greatest of his creation. وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمُ Allah says, and indeed, we have honored the children of Adam. But we are still weak, we are still limited in our capabilities. If humble insects and humble animals and beasts can outdo us, surpass us, supersede us in simple tasks, how can we arrogate to ourselves a belief that these humble minds of ours that have been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can actually comprehend the Creator Himself? We cannot. So for us, it's a question of belief. This is why Imam Bukhari relates a hadith in which he says, Shaytan will come to one of you and constantly ask you, repeatedly ask you, that who has created this, who has created this? And when the answer is given, Allah, Shaytan will then finally pose a question, well then who created Allah? So what did the Prophet ﷺ himself suggest as an answer? He said, then you say, I believe in Allah. And you say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaytan Rajeem. You seek protection from the accursed devil, and you affirm and ratify your faith in Allah. Because there will always come a limit when intelligence ceases and faith begins. Because our human minds are feeble, and we are unable to fathom or truly appreciate the reality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why he says, La absar Sights cannot encompass him. And he encompasses all sights. And he is the subtle, the all-knowing. So when Allah says, he is the first and he is the last. And he is the, out- he is the inward and he is the outward. And he is all-knowing of all things. We affirm our faith in Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah is eternal. He was never born. And another thing, Lam Yalid. He was never born is the second part of the verse, Lam Yulid. He was never he never gave birth. This refers to the belief that Allah has children, daughters or sons. And both have been ascribed to Allah. As Allah says in the verse of the Quran. Allah says, and they have made the jinns partners of Allah, even though Allah has created them. Allah created the jinns, but they make jinns partners to Allah. And then Allah says, and they have fabricated for Allah sons and daughters without knowledge. And daughters, the goddesses of Arabia, and others, even the angels. Allah says, And they have made, this question, are angels males or females? The common perception in various cultures and religions is that angels are females. But Allah says, and they have made those angels 
who are the servants of Rahman, the most gracious. They have made them females. What? Were they a witness unto the creation of the angels? So, and then having made these angels feminine, they were ascribed as daughters to Allah, just as various goddesses like Lat, Uzza, and Manat were ascribed as daughters to Allah. And various people have been ascribed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as being the son of Allah or the sons of Allah. So whether it's a son or sons, whether it's a daughter or daughters, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has no children. And as Allah says in a verse of the Qur'an, أَنَّا يَكُونُ لَهُ وَلَدٌ وَلَمْ تَكُنْ لَهُ صَاحِبَةٌ How can Allah have a child when he has no partner? When he has no wife? This is that concept of God as a member of a family. With a wife, with a partner, with a spouse, with children. Allah did not beget himself. Allah did not have a partner who gave birth. Allah was not given birth himself. And the Quran speaks very strongly about this belief of ascribing children to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are various verses. I won't uh, repeat them. I'll just mention one from Surah Maryam. Allah says, and they have said that Rahman, the most gracious, has taken a son for himself. Verily, you have brought forth a great enormity. The heavens are about to split asunder because of it. And the earth is also about to split asunder because of it. And the mountains are about to fall and collapse because of it. That they have claimed for Rahman the most gracious son. And it is not befitting for the most gracious that he takes a son for himself. Verily, far from taking anyone of his creation as a son, Allah says, In kulluman samawati wal ard, there is no one in the entire heavens and the earth except that they will all come to Allah as a servant. Even the messengers of Allah will come to Allah as a servant. Allah has enumerated them and Allah has counted them one by one. And on the day of resurrection, every one of them will come to Allah alone as an individual. That's just one set of verses, but there are various verses throughout the Quran in which Allah addresses this topic of ascribing children to Allah, whether they are male or female. So, in fact, Imam Bukhari relates a hadith in his Sahih from Sayyidina Abu Musa al-Ash'ari in which the Prophet says, or in one narration, Allah says there is no one who is more patient upon hearing abuse than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
they claim a son for him, and he continues to provide for them and to protect them. And in another hadith related by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, from Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Allah, كَذَّبَنِ ibn Adam, وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ ذَلِكُ وَشَتَمَنِي ibn Adam, وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ ذَلِكُ فَأَمَّا تَكْذِيبُهُ إِيَّاي فَقَوْلُهُ لَنْ يُعِيدَنِي كَمَا خَلَقَنِي كَمَا بَدَأَنِي وَلَيْسَ أول الخلق بأهون علي من عيادته وأما شتمه إياي فقوله Prophet وسلم says that Allah says man has re- the son of Adam has rejected me and it is not possible it's not permissible for him to do this he has no right to do this son of Adam has abused me and he has no right to do this as for his Belying me and rejecting me. It is his claim that I will not return him to his former creation just as I created him the first time, even though creating the first time is no easier for me, is no simpler for me than recreating the second time. I both are equal to Allah. And son of Adam. He has abused me. And his abusing of me is قوله, that I have taken a son for myself. Allah says, and son of Adam's abusing me is his claim that I have taken a son for myself when I am the one, the unique. It's a variation of Surah Qulhu Allahu Ahad. When I am the one, the unique, I, was, I did not give birth, nor was I born. And there is no one who is comparable to me. So the Quran and the Hadith speak very strongly about all forms of polytheistic belief, whether it's the worship of many gods or the worship of icons instead of gods, even though they may be related to Allah or ascribing children, male or female, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And finally, the surah ends with the words, وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٍ And there is no one who is comparable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in any way whatsoever. Allah has no equal. And as Allah says in the verse of the Qur'an, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرِ There is nothing, not just no one, but لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is nothing like unto Allah. And he is the all-hearing, all-seeing. There is so much that can be said about uh, Surah Qulhu Allahu Ahad, but uh, this is a simple translation and summary meaning of these verses. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand the words of Allah and to act upon these words of Tawheed. May Allah make our prayers, our worship, and our religion, and our being exclusive for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulina habiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions For additional lectures and products please visit www.akstore.com We can also be contacted by phone 
on double zero double four one two one double seven one three triple seven or by email via sales at akstore.com produced under license by Alcotha Productions all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author any unauthorized distribution broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright <laughs>